0: Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We are a Seattle-based community that believes all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. Hey, uh, if you're new, it's good to see you. Uh, My name is Justin and I'm lead pastor here at Icon. Super excited. Uh, for a couple reasons. One is we're wrapping up uh, a series that was kind of our first series as a church. So we are uh, a 12-week-old church uh, in many ways, and uh, we're wrapping up this first series that we've been in in Genesis. Uh, Glad to be through it. We have wrestled with some really big and difficult topics uh, over the last 12 weeks, and uh, I'm glad uh, to be done (laughs) wrestling uh, with all of those things. Uh, and moving on to something uh, more fun, like uh, talking about Jesus and the Gospel of John, which is what we're going to do uh, from next week all the way through to Easter. Uh, so excited about that. You guys can read ahead if you'd like. I'm also excited that we've been doing this morning service thing, uh, and I, we've been transitioning the folks from Reunion Church that we are merging with uh, to icons. We've been calling it Reunicon, and uh, it's, it's been great, really, really great. The people there have been fantastic, and I'm really excited for you to be able to get to know them. Uh, just some really great folks over there. Uh, so for those of you who are going to be joining the, the 10 a.m. service, uh, there's just a great group of probably 40 or 50 people over there waiting for you uh, to take good care of you. And uh, I think some of them will probably uh, shift over here as well. So just excited, mostly that I don't have to preach two different sermons on Sundays anymore going forward. Uh, one's enough for me. Uh, and uh, and just excited to to be moving forward together. So to do that, let's turn to Genesis chapter 12, Uh, This is where we're going to stop our Genesis series. Uh, We're actually going to pick back up in Genesis 12 uh, next year. And so we're, we're kind of doing this cyclical thing uh, that uh, is, well, you don't, you don't care. You just show up and, and just listen to whatever I tell you. So it's great. It's great. I love it. Uh, but we're doing John. We'll do something in the middle. And then we'll come back to Genesis in the fall of next year. So Genesis chapter 12, we're going to look at three verses uh, tonight that are three of the most important verses in the entire Bible, really. It's a, it's a pretty massive turning point in the narrative. Uh, it's a turning point for us theologically. It's a turning point uh, for kind of the, the history of redemption, that kind of redemptive arc here. God's going to do something pretty specific uh, here in these three verses. So here's what I want to do. I want to read those three verses, and then we'll kind of go back to the beginning and, uh, and talk through it. So here we go. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It says now the lord said to abram go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that i will show you and i will make of you a great nation and i will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing i will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you i will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, what's interesting about this is we are several hundred years uh, since Babel, right? So that last week we talked about the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And and a, several hundred years have uh, uh, from ha, have elapsed since that story. And kind of out of a genealogy of a bunch of random names, you can go back and read them on your own. We're not going to do that because that's... Terrible. Uh, so, uh, but out of that kind of randomness of a whole bunch of names, God picks out Abram of all the people. And, and, For no apparent reason, and this is one of my favorite things about God and the way in which God tends to work uh, over and over and over in the scriptures, is that he chooses a, a vessel or a conduit for his work and for his grace to be shown to the world, and he does so for no real reason, right? It's not as if he looked out over all of the earth and said, okay, I need to find the best leader. I need to find the most holy person. I need to find the most winsome personality. I need to find the guy I can trust the most or the girl who is the most charismatic. Like none of that. In fact, as we'll see next fall in the story of Abram, he is none of those things. Like he immediately like sells out his wife uh, out of fear of a, a foreign king, right? Like he's immediately a really bad guy, right? So he's not the most winsome guy. He's not the most holy guy. He's just a guy right? But he's the guy that God chooses to reveal really the rest of the story. So this is kind of this massive turning point that up until this moment, uh, we have had kind of a a really meta picture of what's been going on with God and his creation. There's not been a consistent person that has been the theme besides God himself. And so now the story kind of really winds down to one specific person, really focuses in on Abram, who lives, later becomes Abraham, spoiler alert, uh, and, and and the rest of the story really tracks through Abraham um, through for the rest of the Old Testament. And so uh, this is a really important moment for the story to focus in and go, okay, this is the guy that God chose to use to reveal to all of his creation what this was going to look like and what God's relationship with the world was going to look like. So, these three verses tend to be this this kind of pivot point for us in the story to kind of focus in on Abraham and what God's going to do through him. So, that's why we want to pay close attention to these three verses because it becomes not just this moment for Abram, but I really kind of Paradigmatic or or pattern for all of us, as we'll see here in a moment. So back to the text Genesis 12, 1 it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go, and that's a theme that will be common throughout the scriptures that God calls a person to go, and he says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Everything you've known, everything you are, every bit of your identity, every bit of your security, every bit of your inheritance, every bit of your comfort, everything you know, everything you love, everything that gives you a sense of place in the world, leave it. This is the first words of God to Abram that we have recorded. There was no preamble to this conversation, right? God didn't show up and go, Abram, how are you, man? It's good to see you. I've been tracking your life. You're really, it seems like you're on a great path here. By the way, I'm God. I love you. Created the world. I can be trusted. It's great. No, none of that. God just shows up and goes, Abram, go. Go, leave everything you know. Leave everything that matters. Literally everything that meant anything at that time, he was told to leave his country which just means like his his geographical area that he was familiar with and this is pre transportation of any time i mean camels were like max transportation here and so this is a land that he had walked only he knew this land well as a, as a kind of a, a man of the land, man of the wilderness. Like this was his home geographically. It's his people, his kindred, his father's house, which was his name and his inheritance and just literally everything he knew. And God says, go to the land that I will show you. And and I'm reading this into the text. It's not in the Hebrew, but I, I, I would like to believe that God gave a long pause after saying that. Because listen to what he just said. He said, Abram, go, leave everything and go that way. Like nothing about the destination. He just said, go to the place that I will show you, not go to this awesome place right? So uh, I remember uh, some years ago, we were on vacation in Southern California, and we woke the kids up early one morning, and it was a very spur of the moment. We weren't planning to do this, but we woke the kids up, and we were near Disneyland, right? In the sense that we were in generally Southern California. And, and I looked at Emily, and I said, we got to go to Disneyland. And she's looked at me like, what? Are you serious? We haven't talked about that. That's not on the radar. That's not on the budget. That's nothing. And I'm like, yeah, but I want to go to Disneyland. <laughs> and we're like, Within 200 miles, we've got to go, right? And so we, we said, all right, kids, hey, get in the car. We got to go. And they said, where? And I said, no, nah, don't worry about it. We just got to go. And we're like, but, but where? And I said, we got to go. We're going to go to a park. And they're like, oh, okay, that sounds fine, right? And they're asking, like, does it have a playground? Does it have swings? I'm like, you'll love it. It's a great park. It's one of the best parks. It's a very happy park. <laughs> it's one of the happiest parks, actually, on earth. And they weren't picking up on any of this. Super dumb. And uh and so we're driving to Disneyland. This is a 45-minute drive, and, and we're driving to Disneyland, and they just they're arguing in the back about who gets to be on the swings and what's the park gonna be like, and they're like very half-hearted about the whole thing. And we start to get closer, and my oldest sees a sign for Disneyland, she goes, Oh, there's a sign for Disneyland, it must be close, and I'm like, huh, interesting. That'd be fun, wouldn't it, mommy? And she kind of winks, right? And we're like, oh well. And so we keep driving. We get closer and closer. And then they start to get suspicious. My oldest starts to get suspicious, and she's nosy and she's trying to pay attention to everything. And so she starts going, "Hey, hey, wait, are, are we? Are wait, are, are we? Are we really close to Disneyland here? Like, are we maybe going?" And and you know, eventually we kind of smirk and smile. And then they all freak out, right? Because we're going to Disneyland. Because that's the happiest place on earth, irrefutably so. Right? And so God has come to Abram and said, Leave everything to go somewhere. I'll tell you where later, but just trust me. He doesn't say, trust my plan. He doesn't lay out a plan and go, okay, I'm gonna convince you to leave everything that you know and everything that you love and all your identity and all your security and all your comfort. I'm gonna convince you to leave all that by laying out a map to this this place that's gonna be obviously better. He just goes, go to this place that I will show you. And inherent in that is a call to trust God, not God's plan. And that's a massive difference, right? That's a massive difference. In the Gospels, Jesus says that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I've always read that line and thought, you know, what's interesting about that, not that they had flashlights back then, but the promise isn't that we will be able to see yards or miles down the path, but we will be able to see only what the next step or two will be. And in that sense, we are in constant need of trusting in the light. We can never lay the light down because we see that the path is straight and easy. We need it for the next step and the next step and the next step. That God designs this thing so that we have to be in constant relationship with him because here's what would happen otherwise. If God's light was a flashlight and we could see, oh, it's a pretty straight Uh, path here. It's even, there's no real risk. And okay, so I'm just going to put the flashlight in my back pocket and I'm going to go at my own pace. I'm going to go on my own strength. I'm going to do my own thing. God never does that. He just gives us the next step or two and says, trust me, not the path. Trust me, not your ability to navigate the future. Trust me, not the plan that you have made. So God's call to Abram is God's call to us to trust him. Now, um, the, the, the greatest illustration I have of this is with my children. My children don't trust me. And they, they shouldn't, honestly. Um, but we do this thing all the time where they want to jump into my arms. And it's always their idea. That's never, it's never been my idea. They've never been up high and I've said, hey, jump into my arms. I want to catch you. That's never been the thing. Every single time, it's their idea. And it happens the same way every single time. They are on the stairs or they're on up here when they're not supposed to. And I say, come on, come down. And they go, I want to jump into your arms. I go, oh, okay, fine. And I'll go like this. And they hesitate. And I'm like, hey, this was your idea. Okay. <laughs> Like, I'm not trying to talk you into this. This was your idea, and they hesitate and they look at me like, Can I trust you? And and I will often say, Do you trust me? Come on, you can trust me. Jump into my mind. have I ever dropped you? I'll say this all have I ever dropped you ever? Am I not the strongest person you've ever known? <laughs> and they go, Yeah, of course you always tell us that, Dad. <laughs> and they jump and I catch them. And eventually I'll let him fall because, you know, like this is a broken world and they need to know that, right? <laughs> but for now, we're building trust, you know, like they need to know that daddy is, that I can catch him for now. This is God's call. God simply says, do you trust me? Not do you trust the plan because trusting the plan is still about me. It's still about me being in control and my ability to assess the trustworthiness of the plan if it's the right plan, if that's a plan that I want to do. God to Abram says, go to the land that I will show you. And then the long pause is over in verse two. He says, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, Here's what God does, that God says, listen, I want you to go, I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you to a place you don't know, but I'm going to promise you on the front end that everything you're turning your back on, everything you're leaving, I will give back to you, and in fact, I will multiply it, right? So he asks him to go away from his country, but promises that he will make him into a nation, he tells him to leave his kindred from his family name, but he promises him a great name that will be a blessing. He asks him to leave his father's house and the protection inherent in that, but offers to him divine protection. Over and over and over, God calls Abram to go and then promises him that he will bless him with more, that everything he turns his back on, he will get multiplied in the future. Now, these are great promises, but they are still largely dependent on the degree to which Abram trusts God to be able to make good on those promises. This is still God asking Abram, just look at me, just trust me. Do you think I could do it? Now, I would have questions, right? Like, how is this going to happen? You're asking me to leave everything. It's just going to be me and my wife. How are you going to make me into a great nation? How are you going to give me this great family? How, how am I, Abram, who's really a nobody in a backwoods town, how are you going to turn me into this great nation with this great name? And how in the world am I going to be a blessing to all people? I mean, how big a family are we talking about? How great a name are we talking Essentially, the question I would have is, will it be worth it? Because I know what I'm leaving and I don't really know what you're promising. So if I could get some specifics, that would be really helpful. God promises him, to walk with him, to trust in him. If he trusts in him, that he will multiply the things that he has. And even more than that, certainly more than Abram could ever have hoped for or planned for or guessed, God actually promises that through him, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this simply means like all, of the, all different kinds of people, all the different nations, all the different tribes, all the different families. This is language that speaks to the diversity of experience that God's not just saying, hey, your family and your tribe will be blessed, but in fact, I'm gonna work through you in such a way that the whole world will be blessed. God chose Abram to be his conduit for blessing the world. And, and as grand as that sounds, I promise you, Abram had plans. Abram had plans for his life. I don't know what they were. It might have been about sheep. I'm not sure. But Abram had plans. And so as great as this may sound, the, to multiply his name and to be a blessing to the world and have this great nation and a big family and all these things, they're there was certainly something in Abram that had to say, yeah, but yeah, but I had a plan, God. Like I, kind of, I knew what I wanted to do. I was gonna to go to school. I was gonna get this job. I was gonna have this career. I was gonna meet this girl we or meet this guy. We we're gonna have a family. This is what it was gonna be. I had a plan for my life. But verse four says simply, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So, if there's anybody in here thinking to themselves, man, I'm getting old, and I don't know what I'm doing with my life, Beverly, you got 15 years before you're at Abram. (laughs) You are a young woman. simply says that Abram went, left everything for something, and he just went. This is a turning point for the whole story. God chose to use Abram to more specifically make clear his intentions. The story up to this point has been kind of God's intervention in these kind of ad hoc, weird kind of ways where God intervenes and then seems to step out and then intervenes and sees the people building a tower and intervenes. And from here on out, God will actually express his will and make clear his desires for his people. And what's remarkable is that this calling of Abram explicitly both rejects and redeems the sin of Adam and Eve that we talked about, the sin of autonomy, that God calling Abram to simply obey and walk with him, to to do what God had asked him to do, to trust in him rather than express his individual freedom, and redeems the sin of Babel. The desire for self glory and self preservation. That God fundamentally reorients Abram's life to, from whatever plan Abram may have had for him, outward to be a blessing to all the nations. God literally turned Abram's life inside out. He says, I'm going to bless you, but not for you, but as a conduit for the whole world. I'm going to bless you so that you would be a blessing to the rest of the world. And this calling also serves as a pattern of the way in which God would call all people. Abraham's just the beginning. The calling of Abram is our calling as well. Throughout the scriptures, God will call his people to go to trust him, to trust him and not his plans, to lay aside identity and security, comfort, protection, power, even family in service of a greater calling. And he has promised each of us a new family, a new name and a new source of protection and security. And when we fulfill this calling and live into this divine purpose, the people around us are blessed. Over and over, we see this pattern play out in Scripture. In Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That Jesus called his disciples, lay down your life, pick up your cross, and follow me. And I'm not going to tell you where, but, but that very metaphor tells you it's going to be sacrificial. It's going to be hard. You're, you're bearing a cross with me, but I promise that if you follow me, you will experience life. In Matthew 28, Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' parting words to his disciples were, go, go and make disciples. And the promise is that I will be with you. The very presence of God is promised to us as we go along the way making disciples. Even Ephesians 2 in its own way lays out this pattern as God calls us out of self-righteousness and into grace-filled faith so that we might do the good works he prepared for us. It's the same move every time. Go from what you have known and walk with God by faith and he will be with you he will bless you with eternal life, with his presence, with true life itself. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this, and it's a longer one, but the longer the better with Lewis, right? says, there must be a real giving up of yourself. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real self, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own self, your own personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. This is the call of Abram. This is the call to take up your cross. This is the call to make disciples. This is the call of the gospel to turn from yourself and in faith turn towards Christ, trusting that he can accomplish what you never could, trusting that taking up your cross is actually the path to life, trusting that going from your family, from your home, from your kindred, from your father's house is actually the path to life and blessing. This is the consistent call of the gospel in every one of its forms. It's the same basic pattern. Die to yourself, die to your ambitions, die to your desire to be somebody, and it's only then that you will find life. And there's a reason that this pattern holds. It's because it's the pattern that Christ set for us. See, first and foremost, the calling of Abram isn't about us. It's not even really about Abram. Before any of us could read or obey Abram's calling, Jesus was told by the Father to go, to leave his Father's house, to leave heaven, to leave the constant adoration of the angels and go to the place that the Father had prepared for him. Jesus was sent from the comfort of home, to be born into a world devastated and reeking with sin. Worse yet, to be born in a stable in a backwoods town, the equivalent of a Middle Eastern carnation or pialop. Can you imagine? (laughs) But for Jesus, there too was a promise. The promise that his mission would result in a new people. That at the very name of Jesus, people would be blessed and that those who follow him, bless him, would be blessed by the Father and that those who curse him would be cursed. And that in the end, in Jesus, all the nations of the world, all the peoples and all of the families would be blessed. See, this is the calling of Abram, yes, But more importantly, it is is a clear representation of God's redemptive plan for history. That, That at the time, there's no way Abram would have known, could have known, even when Genesis was written so many years after Abram that anyone could have known. And yet now we look back and we go, oh my gosh, how could they have missed it? It's so obvious. God was setting the stage for God was setting the stage through Abram for Jesus, the, the ultimate, the true and greater Abram, who would be sent by the Father from his home so that the whole world would be blessed. And so just as Abram was a precursor to Jesus, so we follow the path that Jesus made for us. See, the only reason that death can bring about life, the only reason that dying to self can actually bring about flourishing, the only reason that sacrifice can ever bring about joy, the only reason that any darkness can ever lead to light is because Jesus paved that way, tore open that path. It was only by the power of God that that was possible. people tell me all the time that they're looking for their purpose or they're trying to find themselves and find their calling in life. I know your purpose. I'll tell you right now, it's not that complicated actually. You are an image bearer of God sent by God to be a blessing to the whole world. Just like Abram, just like Jesus. The specific way you do that today or tomorrow is the least important part. Listen to the voice of God telling you who you are, that you are an image bearer, that that is your truest identity, that's the thing that can never change about you, that that is is our starting point, that we actually bear the image and the glory of God, that we can represent him in the world. That is the truest thing about you. Listen to the voice of God telling you what you are for, that you don't exist for you. And every ounce of strength, every second of thought, every, every moment of anxiety that you have ever felt thinking about you and your future has been wasted and has been walking you down a path to despair and rage and ruin, as Lewis said. But that every moment you have spent, every step you have taken, every ounce of energy and strength, every thought you've had about other people has led you down a path of life. Listen to the voice of God telling you who you are. Listen to the voice of God telling you what you you are for then once you have done those things and done them well and done them over and over and really own them and you know who you are and you know what you're for, then whatever you do after that's probably great. Whatever job you decide to take is fine. Whatever people that you surround yourself is good. Whatever you do in the morning or in the evening or in the afternoon, it's fine. If you've got those two things figured out, the rest of it is the least important part. All of it flows from there. So there you go. There's your purpose in life. Know who you are, know what you're for, and then whatever. And yet it's, it's, it's the whatever part the part that actually matters the least, the part that is the furthest away from the foundation that draws all our attention, that draws all our anxiety, that draws all our ambition. It's what we think about. It's what we pray about. It's what we worry about. It's what we spend money on. And in the meantime, ignore the things that are the most important. See, God comes to Abram in the middle of his life and simply says, go, leave everything, go, just trust me, I got you. Then Abram went. If he did ask a question, it doesn't record it, so apparently it wasn't a good question. He just went, and he followed God, and he trusted that whatever God's gonna give him next is okay, and it's the right thing because it's God. God was a lamp unto his feet and a light unto his path. He trusted God for the next step and the next step and the next step. So when we ask ourselves, what is our purpose? What is our calling? What are we to do with our lives? It is simply this, know who you are and know what you're for. And if we can know who we are and know what we're for, then whatever comes next is good. And you can do this job for a while, and then you can do that job for a while, and you can be with this person for a while, and you can be with that person for a while, as long as you don't get married in the process, but you know what I mean. (laughs) It's good. It's good. So let's spend our attention on the things that matter most. The things that God says, here, just, just trust me. I got the rest of it. I know who you are, and I know what you're for. So just take the next step with me. Okay, we'll take a couple questions here. Uh, The first, what is the value of long-term planning, and how should we as people of God do it? Uh, I love this question, because I can just picture the planners in the room going, "But, but my plan... Uh, In James chapter four, uh, verse 13 says, "'Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, "'we will go into such and such a town "'and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. "'Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. "'What is your life? "'For you are a mist that appears for a little while "'and then vanishes. "'Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, "'we will live and do this or that. "'As it is, you boast in your arrogance. "'All such boasting is evil.'" So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. What I love about this passage um, is is that James is tackling a a very real world and a very common, and I would say increasingly common, in fact, in our day we do a whole lot more uh, long-term planning than uh, first century folks did uh, because we have way more control over our lives, way more upward mobility, way more money, way more access and opportunity. And so we want to map out our futures. And yet, uh, James here in this uh, this context that is so much less than what we deal with, calls whatever little version of next year we're going to go to this town and spend money and make profit and trade and all this, uh, calls that arrogant boasting. And instead suggests that they tack on this little phrase, if the Lord wills, right? And and certainly what James is not saying is that uh, at the top of your planner, when you make your plan, you should write, if the Lord wills, and then that covers you, right? Like that's not the point of it, but that it is a a posture of the heart. Oftentimes, not always, hear me, hear me as a long-term planner, hear me as someone who is constantly thinking three to five years into the future, Uh, That it is a posture of the heart that is, one, arrogantly assuming I know how things are going to play out and I can predict it. Two, that I have a lot of control over what is the future. And three, that I should have a lot of control over the future. Because if I'm super honest, I don't want control over the future because it just won't turn out well, right? So there is an arrogance to it that assumes that we ought to be, that we can be in control of the future, that we can bring about our preferred future. And we hear that a lot in kind of motivational speaking and people that make money off of making us anxious about our futures, um, that we can and should control our future by planning well and reverse engineering our lives and all of this kind of language. And so James's uh, correction to us is not that we shouldn't plan into the future, but is rather a heart orientation that would say we should humbly consider the future, that we should humbly prepare for what may come to pass. But I would guess we could go around the room and think back to our 2000. Uh, what is this? this is 19? So say our 2014 selves and where we would have predicted we would be in 2019. And I'm guessing very few of us nailed it, right? Which means that you're all terrible at five-year plans. Okay. So whatever five-year plan you have now is terrible as well, and it won't come to pass. I can almost guarantee it, right? So. Uh, let's let's drop the pretense that we have control. Let's acknowledge the fact that this is us trying to control the future and calm whatever fears and anxieties we have about the mysterious future and recognize that what's better than us having a long-term plan is that God does have a long-term plan and it always turns out how he plans it. So rather than us, who are fundamentally broken people, arrogant people, selfish people, and weak people, unable to actually execute the plans that we have, rather than us being in control, God, who is omniscient, powerful, and perfect— making the plan is actually a much better situation. So instead of making a plan, if we spent that time orienting our hearts to contentment and submission to God's will for us, I think we'd end up being a lot healthier five years from now than we are today. Question two. As I examine my own heart, how do I identify areas not fully submitted to Christ? It's a great question. Um, There's a a, a counselor uh, duo who I uh, read a lot and pay attention to that talk about paying attention to your feelings and if you have an outsized emotional reaction to something that you should pay attention to those kinds of things. So I would say um, anything that scares you, anything that you you feel protective of, anything that uh, you want to control is probably not submitted to Christ as fully as it could be. Because submission to Christ, in in its perfect sense, and we are all imperfect people kind of fumbling our way through lives, but in its perfect sense actually frees us from fear, frees us from a desire to control, and, and, and the, the more things are submitted to Christ, it is, uh, submission to Christ is always the, uh, the activity that is preceded by trust in Christ. And so where we have an area where we feel fear, we feel, feel anxiety, that's an area where we don't trust God to be able to be in control of that thing. And so we're hedging, we're trying to maintain some control of our own. And that's fundamentally a reflection of what what you believe about Christ, what you believe about God and his desires for you or his power to actually execute what he wants to do. It's always that. It's always either a mistrust in God's ability or in God's intention. How much God actually loves me or how much God is powerful enough to, to actually overcome these things that I feel fear about. And so pay attention to your feelings. Pay attention to how those things make you feel as you would imagine letting them go. Imagine not being in control of these things. Uh, And probably as anxiety and fear uh, emerge, that's a clue as to what's not submitted to Christ. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.